Episode 49 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Today you're going to hear from Lierre Keith. She's the author of The Vegetarian Myth and Deep Green Resistance. This is an interview I did with great trepidation. I'm I'm still a little puzzled by the whole thing. I'm not sure whether I should have done the interview or I should have just left it alone. It it is very complicated to me. Um, if you read Deep Green Resistance, um, you can make up your own mind whether um, how you feel or think about it. Are are they are they a terrorist organization? Is if they are, is that justifiable? Um, if if indeed. Uh, it is necessary to save this earth. You know, are there tactics appropriate? You know, these are these are questions I have. I don't know. I, I I'm far from knowing. Um, I even question whether, like I said, if I should even do this interview. Am I promoting something, you know, beyond my scope of knowledge that's harmful? Am I doing more harm or good by producing this episode? Am I giving myself too much credit? You know, <laughs> how many people actually listen to this show? I have no idea. If um, if things you hear on this are of interest to you or you have some words you'd like to share, you know, I do have comments open on my, uh, for each podcast episode. It's um, um, discus or discuss or whatever, however you pronounce it. <clears throat> the comment section there. I don't, ever ask people to comment on episodes because I don't feel I don't want to moderate a comment section on my blog or the website it's just a pain that I don't want to deal with um, so for this one maybe you know if you have some thoughts some enlightening thoughts please share them there I don't want to make it an attack forum um, on from either side I hope that doesn't happen, but maybe, you know, at some levels a debate may be required, a debate may be required, but, you know, language gets out of control on the internet. So, well, we'll see how that plays out. Um, I think this is going to be part one of two. Lear had mentioned after the show that perhaps she could come back on and talk about more actions um, that she would recommend or the thoughts she has the things that people could do so maybe we could learn more in part two well I hope you find this interesting Um, I'm not I did not do this to promote her agenda I didn't um, it's just I'm just inquisitive and like I said, I'm a little nervous about it. So, you know, because if you listen to Lear's voice and her message, it's she appears to be a very kind 
and loving person who cares deeply about planet Earth. And when someone is that impassioned, what are they capable of? You see, that's how I am. That's that's why I'm a little nervous, okay? So, I know I'm slowly rambling, but I haven't even listened to this episode. I'm just recording this right after the interview. I, I don't even have a title in mind for this one yet. It is episode 49. My website is askbrian.com. It's askbryan.com. Click the podcast link. This one will be number 49. Well, there you have it. Give a listen and let me know what you think. And, of course, thank you for listening. I think maybe I should add a little intro. Uh, I didn't really talk about who Lier is or, or anything or background. So, just to set the stage, I'm just going to read... Let's see. Let's go to her site. And I'll, I'll just read this. Lier Keith is a writer, radical feminist, food activist, and environmentalist. Her book, The Vegetarian Myth... Food, Justice, and Sustainability has been called the most important ecological book of this generation. Her writing and lectures focus on civilization's violence against the planet, male violence against women, and the need for serious resistance to both. Here's the episode. You know, your ideas in your second book, Deep Green Resistance, are, although I haven't read the whole book, um, but I have looked into it, you know, are a little upsetting and troubling to me. And yet, um, I'm on a course of discovery, so I'm open to to hearing what you have to say. Okay. And I don't want people to think that, why didn't I challenge her on this? Or, you know, everything you say, I'm not going to just be dismissive. But I may have some points. I'm just not sure. You know, and I would like to point out to people that you wrote a great book called The Vegetarian Myth, and that kind of put you on the map. And you had a lot of defenders out there, and you were very popular with, say, the Weston A. Price Foundation, um, the paleo people, you know. And, and then I noticed kind of like your disappearance <laughs> from the scene. Um, I don't know if that was on your part or if people got a little nervous and turned their back on you. Did you feel that at all? I have to say, no, I have not felt that. Okay. Um, I continue to get fan mail pretty much every day from people who are, mostly it's from people who are recovering vegetarians or vegans. And I think that they have found great solace in my book because it, ex- it explained what went wrong. Um, and I think like a lot of people who take up that kind of, you know, vegetarian ethic, it, you know, it feels like, it should work, you know, like it makes sense on so many levels. So why did it destroy my health? And I mean, that's what I did. I just kept throwing myself against that wall thinking this has to be the right thing to do. Therefore, it must work. And, you know, my health just kept failing and failing and failing. And finally, I had to admit I was going to kill myself if I didn't stop. But it was just a tremendous, you know, emotional turmoil for a year or two, 
trying to readjust everything that I thought I knew about the world. So I think having laid that all out in a book is just incredibly helpful for people who, you know, had entered that world as, 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 you know, as deeply as I had and it had embraced it thoroughly. So, um, yeah, I continue to get all, all kinds of really moving um, and emotional emails from people. Some of them are only just beginning to realize that, that it's not going to work for them and it's really hard. You know, and so I sort of hold their hands for a while um, and, until they're able to kind of absorb new information and, and figure it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And others of them have been out of it for a while, and they're like, oh, thank God somebody wrote this all down because this is, you know, all the stuff that I've learned since and that now I understand what happened and, you know, why my joints fell apart and why I had terrible depression and, you know, why I ended up with an anxiety disorder and, you know, why I couldn't conceive a child and, you know, all the problems, everything that can go wrong when you are on those kind of low-fat, high-carb diets mm-hmm. and... So, and so they find it just, it's a great relief to have it all in one place, especially because a lot of their friends are still in that world. And of course, there's just those horrible arguments that you get in with people. So I think it's really helpful for them to have sort of the condensed version. I don't think I really made anything up. It's just that I put it in one place for them. And I think that's really helpful when you're sort of grappling with these huge issues about politics and identity and loyalty and, you know, all the stuff that that can just be so hard as you're sort of moving from one community to another. Anyway, um, you know, long story short, I don't, I don't really feel like, um, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe what you're saying is true, but in, in my life experience, it hasn't been true. I mean, I just continue to get. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that there'd be any backlash against that book. Just mm-hmm. your new effort and your new work, perhaps. Um, I what, think speaks what... to a different, a different community of people, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, the title of the book, Vegetarian Myth, is, is important because it's the same path. It's a, a, I have a similar story where... You know, I watched the movie Food, Inc., and Mm -hmm. I said, oh, my God, I didn't really freaking realize how disgusting industrial meat is. Right. So I stopped eating meat that day. Sure. But what did I do? I I gorged on industrial grains instead (laughs) and had no idea the ecological damage, the personal health, you know, repercussions of that decision. And fortunately, it only lasted about 18 months for me. Um before I did any serious damage to this planet or to myself. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's, I, that's what I was refer, kind of referring to, the, the vegetarian myth. It, the title itself is, is profound because it does seem like it's got to be the right way. I've even thought, you know, as a paleo-inspired eater, I would say, or lifestyle person currently, I often think, what about raw veganism? What do you think? Um, I, I think that that's going even further in the wrong direction. Okay. A lot of foods simply are not edible unless they're cooked. Um, and, you know, what heat does is it disables a whole bunch of anti-nutrients. Um, so substances in, in plants in particular that are really damaging to our health. They either drain minerals out of our bodies or, um, you know, are toxic in all kinds of ways. And when you heat the food, you disable those substances. So it, by cooking, you know, we make food a lot more... Um, accessible to us and, and, and foods that are toxic then actually become edible. Now, having said that, every traditional society eats some raw food, but you have to know which foods are, are good to eat raw and why. And mostly the raw foods that are eaten, of course, are the ones that are really considered sacred are raw animal products, particularly the organ meats. And that's for very good reason. The 
the uh, nutrients that are in there are are very susceptible to being damaged by heat. So it's the opposite. You know, if you heat those foods, you actually hurt them. So raw liver would be the classic example. Um, some of the fats in the in the raw liver, which are incredibly important for brain function and you know lots of really good things that we need. Um, the moment you heat them, of course, you're destroying them. So it's it's really important to eat a little bit of raw animal fats in particular, but animal foods, um, you know, at least once or twice a week. And it's hard for us because we've, you know, especially in the United States and more Western cultures, we've, we've lost um, sort of the cultural pattern of doing that. Um, you know, any of us who come from a more sort of ethnic background, we haven't been totally whitewashed. Our grandmothers probably fed us liver. But by the time you get to our parents' generation, it's over. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not eating those kinds of foods anymore. And, and that's like, you know, the food we sort of look down on is, oh, my God, you know, like, how, how did anybody ever eat that? That's just so bizarre that, you know, that's right. in our history. But in fact, you know, those are, that's the food that is the most nutrient dense. Mm-hmm. And if, if you sort of look at a table of nutrients, animal foods, like the muscle meat that we all eat now, uh, is anywhere from 10 to 100 times more nutrient dense than, than any plant food, any given plant food. But then if you go to the, the organ meats, they're anywhere from 10 to 100 times more nutrient dense than the muscle meat. So the real, like, you know, Mercedes Benz of food would, would really be the organ meats. Mm-hmm. And that's what we feed to the dogs. I mean, it's completely the opposite. It used to be the humans got that food and we left the rest for the scavengers, you know, the mm-hmm. wild dogs or whatever in the neighborhood. And now it's completely flipped. I mean, we're, we're giving the best of, of, what, of what's out there to our pets. I mean, it doesn't it's, really make any sense. It, if a person's smart, they feed their dog that way. <laughs> but oh, I completely agree. I mean, we have a dog and it's, yeah, she gets a, a, the barf diet, the bones and raw food. So she's getting a lot of organ meats, lots of bones. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny yeah. That you mentioned dogs because I, I recently saw a very interesting <clears throat> tweet from a, an MD that I'm a big fan of. Uh, and she said, perhaps we're not omnivores at all um, because of new research about um, dogs' digestive systems being nearly identical to humans. Mm-hmm. And that, um, due to our po- possible our co-evolution with dogs, mm-hmm. right, um, would point to the fact that maybe we aren't omnivores after all. Well, you know, some of the um, the archaeological evidence to me really speaks to the fact that I, I think we're more carnivores than not. I, I'm, I'm not convinced on the omnivore thing myself. And um, I mean, what there's, I forget what the word is, but it's basically fossilized human excrement, and you know, the stuff's 2 million years old and there's not a single cell of plant material in these fossilized remains. It's all animal products. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, you can look at even cultures that are still extant today that eat nothing but animal products and, you know, they produce some of the most incredible human specimens on the planet. I mean, they're just beautiful people. They're tall and they're strong and they're graceful and, you know, they win all kinds of athletic competitions around the world. And yeah, <laughs> that's the human the, template, you know? Right. This yeah. points to the research done by Weston A. Price. Sure. Um, I think they were really um, important. Uh, the Weston A. Price Foundation was really important to your course of discovery, weren't they? Oh, profoundly. Yeah. That was one of the, it was a huge relief for me when I stumbled upon some of that information because, uh, Again, it was explained, you know, like first I found the kind of low carb stuff. Uh, so, you know, Atkins and certainly Michael and Mary, Mary Dan Eads. And that was great because that really explained, you know, what high insulin levels had done to my body and why I felt so sick all the time and the hypoglycemia and, you know, how I was really about two weeks away from being out and out diabetic from 
you know, eating nothing but carbohydrate for 20 years. So all that stuff was great. Um, but there was still a lot of missing pieces for me. So from there, I, I think it's a sort of a natural progression. I think a lot of people go that route. They figure out the low carb thing first, and then you're still poking around looking for answers. And, you know, I found the Weston Price, uh, the website and, and Sally Fallon's book. And that was just a whole nother world. Everything just opened up at that point. And so I started to understand things about grass feeding and what that meant and how, in fact, ecosystems could be restored by um, treating animals appropriately. So in a way, it was um, sort of a spiritually healing experience because in the same way that for me, veganism was kind of a complete worldview, I found another complete worldview that still embodied my values about you know, caring for the earth and caring for animals and having this ethic about sustainability. And I suddenly realized I didn't have to give that up, that I could still do all, care about those things and do all those things. Um, but it was going to be a different set of practices, you know, instead mm -hmm. of, it wasn't going to be about agriculture anymore. It was going to be about something else. So, um, yeah, it was very, it was really great for me to find that stuff. So what is, what does the word agriculture mean to you? And, um, yeah, that's a lot. People, what you mean? Because sure. when most people think, they think pastoral, beautiful greenery and things. So, right. Um, so to me, agriculture. I mean, a lot of people when they say agriculture, they just think people getting food in some way, and that's not what I mean when I say it. I mean very specifically annual monocrops. So putting a plow to soil, um, and then planting annual seeds, and that to me is agriculture. And there are many other ways that people get food. That's just one of them, and that's a very recent one. So, hunter-gatherers would be, you know, the original human method of getting food. And hunter-gatherers are uh, participants in their land base, okay? They don't take a piece of land and destroy it in the service of getting food for themselves. They are part of a community of living beings along with everybody else who lives there. So, salmon and redwood trees and bears and, uh, you know, monarch butterflies, they all live together and everybody plays a role in producing ultimately more life, so producing producing a more resilient biotic community, so that everybody continues to the next generation, and and on down the line, mm -hmm. and so that's what. And I'm not saying that every hunter gatherer does it correctly, because certainly there are mistakes in the archaeological record. We, as humans, we can make terrible mistakes because we're really smart and we're also really stupid. I mean, we've got both things going on at once. Um, and, you know, we do one thing wrong and we can really do tremendous damage. And this is one reason that traditional cultures change very, very slowly is they've realized that, that, you know, if you change just one little thing in the culture that um, it can be a disaster in 10 generations. So it's, it takes a long time to change people's minds and that's for good and for bad. I mean, there's, you know, the, the upside of that is that they figured out what was sustainable and they're sticking to it. And the bad side is, of course, when you end up with traditions that are, are not about just human justice, certainly, um, you know, you can end up with some, some pretty horrifying human rights abuses and xenophobia and stuff like that. So there's, you know, there's always a good and a bad. I don't mean to romanticize, but, um, you know, as a whole, yes, hunter-gatherers participate in their land base. They don't exploit it. Um, they don't destroy it. Um, they intend to live there long-term, and they see all the other creatures that they share that land with as people. You know, they're, they're beings into whom, with whom you can enter a relationship, and that those relationships are ultimately sacred because they're about life to death to life. There's always that transformation going on, um, and that's 
I think that's always understood among hunter-gatherers that, you know, today I'm a human, but tomorrow I'm going to be part of the hawk. And then, you know, in another generation or two, I'll be part of the tree and then I'll be part of the rain. And there's, you know, that sort of that life, that sacred life essence will just keep moving through this gigantic cycle of, yeah, of the almost, cosmos. It's almost as if they understood laws of thermodynamics before. <laughs> yeah, Einstein <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, no, right. it's, it's amazing the kinds of things people were able to figure it out by... I don't know, by observation, by revelation, perhaps. I mean, a lot of people who do plant medicine, who see plants as teachers, I mean, they'll say universally, well, the plants told us that they would heal us in these ways. And I don't want to dismiss that. I mean, if everybody says that's how they got the information around the world, I think it's probably true. I think that they are able to communicate with those plants and that there are plants who indeed want to help us, who want to enter into relationship and care for us as humans. Um, and so, there's all these concepts about plants as our parents or our grandparents, our sacred elders who, who will guide us, who will teach us. So, you have, you know, groups like the, the Mohawk who will say, well, the, the trees are our grandparents. And if you listen to the plants, they will tell us how to live. And I think that's really profound. That's not a metaphor. I mean, we hear that as a metaphor in Western culture. They don't mean it as a metaphor. They mean it literally. You can talk to trees and they will tell you how to live in a balanced way. Um, so, yeah, so I think that all of that information is out there and that hunter-gatherers have, um, I think, a, a much more direct route to it because they, they believe in it and they support those relationships. They teach their children how to have those relationships with their other beings. Okay, so then there's other ways that people have um, managed to get food out of their land base. And so there's pastoralism which in many ways is just a version of hunter-gatherers, but what it, usually that, that takes place on a savanna or on a, a prairie of some sort, and it means that there's large undulates, you know, so wildebeest or reindeer or, um, you know, cattle, whatever you've got, and you, you follow them. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's a relationship of, usually it's hunting, but uh, dairy cultures evolved from this as well. Um, and so it t they tend to be migratory because they're following these large herds sort of, you know, around, around the, the biome. Um, and, you know, there are people who still exist who, who practice this. So you've got, you know, the very last of them in northern Sweden, the Sami people are sort of the, the last remnants of the, uh, the European version. But certainly in Africa, there are plenty. Um, in America, of course, it was the bison cultures and, and then also other cultures that followed creatures like um, the caribou. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've been fairly well um, wiped out by colonialism, but certainly they're, they're, some of them are still hanging on to, to at least the basis of their culture. But it's almost impossible now to, to actually migrate with those large animals because, you know, the, the land base has been so utterly destroyed for, for both the caribou and then, you know, I mean, what happened to the Great Plains to the bison is just, is just unbelievably horrendous in 100 years. That you know, we went from 60 million bison to essentially 1,200. It's just something that you can't even wrap your mind around that level of destruction. Yeah. So, down goes culture. I mean, how can you be a buffalo people when you can't participate with the buffalo anymore? Mm -hmm. So, I think some of those people are hanging on and, and they're biding their time. I mean, all their prophecies say that the day will come. Um, so, we'll see. I mean, that may happen in our lifetimes at, at the rate mm -hmm. we're going. Yeah, and some of this points to technology where it gets ahead of us. Say, for instance, uh, I don't remember what I was watching recently. They're pointing to the fact that perhaps this new technology <laughs> of um, the way they were hunting woolly mammoths by basically rushing them over a cliff. Say, rush a herd of 200 off a cliff and then collect the two that you can. So that was a new hunting technology that um, harmed the people, because they didn't understand what they were doing. They didn't understand the harm of that new hunting technology, right? 
where they were destroying too many animals. And now with modern technologies have are way ahead of us. It seems to me that technology has gone way, way, way too far ahead of us. Yeah, I would agree. And the thing about technology is that it's not neutral. And I think that that is one of the, um, it's almost like a, a, re- a religious idea about technology, that it's neutral, and we're all supposed to believe this. Um, but I don't think it's true. I think that technology is either, there's technology that's inherently democratic, and then there's technology that um, actually requires hierarchy. And the two examples I, I like to use are passive solar. So anybody in the, in the course of a morning can, can be taught the principles of how to co- passively collect sunshine. And sunshine is also free for everyone. It's available to anybody who wants it. It falls on all of us. Nobody can own it. And so I think that that is a te- one of the technologies that's sort of inherently democratizing because for those reasons, you know, anybody can learn how to use it. You know, the, the skills are really simple to learn um, and, and it's widely available. So that's, it's really simple. And then on the, the far opposite end, you've got things like nuclear technology, which only a very small number of people are ever going to understand. Um, and it, the stuff is so damaging that, you know, for 50,000 generations, it's going to be toxic. And what they've created is a priesthood. Because for that many generations, there's always going to have to be some group of highly educated people who understand how to handle those toxic wastes. So they've created a dynasty that, you know, the pharaohs of Egypt in their wildest dreams could not have imagined. Um, so, you know, it's and, – and you and I cannot build a nuclear power plant. I mean, it takes this incredible infrastructure – uh, that is always going to be hierarchical to be able to build something like a, nu- a nuclear power plant um, because if it's the inherent energy required to build it, um, the amount of capital required to build it, and then um, the damaging waste products that are then produced by it. So it, is, it, it requires a hierarchical society, not a democratic society, and it will create a more hierarchical society. And I mean, the person who really wrote about this the best, I think, was probably Lewis Mumford. And the, he uses the word technics to describe this sort of interplay between between technology and society and how one affects the other. But I think it's people really have to get over this notion that, that technology is somehow neutral because it's not. Hmm. Um, it's always either going to be democratizing or it's going to be you know, more hierarchical and sort of subordinating to a culture. So I, I think if we sort of step back, and, we, and it's, it's always the wrong question to ask, how does this affect my life? Because you have to ask, how does this affect the culture at large and ultimately the planet at large? Hmm. And it's really hard to see that as an individual. You've got to step way back from... Um, you know, the kind of shiny, new, addictive um, sort of potential that it has, you know, it's like it doesn't really matter whether you can make a nice newsletter with it. You know, what is it actually doing to human society at large? It's, that's the ever, question that needs to be asked. Yeah. Have you ever read um, Kevin Kelly's What Technology Wants? I have not actually read it. I have heard interviews with him. Yeah. So, yeah. It's fairly interesting. The title is a real turnoff to me. Yeah, me too. But, but, the, <laughs> but, the, but the book itself is... Um, it's very interesting, but it's a little lengthy. It's a little dry, but it's it has some gems in it. So we need to move on. Okay. <laughs> let's let's get into let's get into deep green resistance and tell people about that book and what brought you to write it. Well, what brought me to write it is that my planet is being dismembered, and I am taking that very personally. Um, I, 
I love this planet and I love all the beings who share it with me. And I'm continuously amazed that this is not a nightmare from which I simply can't wake up. I mean, it's, you wake up every morning and it's like, and now it's worse again. And how is it possible that 200 species went extinct yesterday and nobody cared? And another 200 are going to go extinct today and there still aren't people in the streets bringing this down. Like, I don't, I just, I just, I don't know what, I don't know, are we all just numb or are we really that um, entitled that we don't care? I mean, I, I can't figure out which it is. And I suppose for all of us, it's somewhere on that continuum. But anyway, I just feel the emergency of it. This is, this is, this is the last moment we've got to fight before it's it's just going to be too late. I mean, scientists are debating whether by the year 2050, you know, half of all mammals may be extinct. That's well within my lifetime. And by the end of the century, the planet may not support life at all, depending on how hot it gets. I mean, there may not be anything left but bacteria at the thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. And I'm not going to consider that some kind of victory. Huh. I'm just not. I mean, I, I hear this all the time. Well, there'll be some bacteria left, so, you know, we're going to count on that. And I just can't tell you how repugnant I find that, that people are using that as some kind of emotional fail-safe. You know, one of my friends says, okay, so if I murdered you, um, yeah, there would be some bacteria left and they would eat your body or whatever. But I mean, is that really okay (laughs) that I murdered you or murdered your family because some bacteria were left at the end of the day? It's like, don't you want to fight for your loved ones? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you save your own life? And so I I don't, I don't really don't know where, where, I just don't know why there isn't some kind of mass uprising. This is it. This is our one and only planet. And every single thing we love is under assault. So that's, I mean, that's why I wrote the book was out of that sense of profound urgency. Um, it is every living thing that's at risk now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so having said that, um, the first part of the book is about how we got into this mess. So the sort of overlapping systems that have created this level of destruction. And we tried to really lay that out in ways that were clear and simple and irrefutable. So the biggest one being this, this way of life called civilization. So civilization just means people living in cities, but... What that actually means is that they need more than their land can give. Okay, so they're living in a population density that requires the importation of resources mm-hmm. because they've used up that resource. So the food, the water, the energy, they all have to come from somewhere else. And from that point forward, it actually doesn't matter what kind of beautiful, nonviolent values those people might hold in their hearts or might express in their religion or their art. That society is going to be dependent on imperialism and genocide. Because they have to go out into the country, the surrounding colonies, and there are always colonies, and take the resources that they no longer have because they've used them up. Hmm. And that is why civilizations are always imperialistic. They are based on drawdown. So they use up their own, then they go out and they get them from somewhere else. And ultimately, that's the last 10,000 years in four or five sentences. Um, This is observable. I mean, you can just look outside and see. (laughs) Um, There is no food outside your window. You can't support yourself on, you know, whether you're in a city or in the suburbs. You know, there is not enough land for you to get food, to get energy, to get probably not even water. It's probably piped in from somewhere else. Um, And so, that's the pattern that got started 10,000 years ago. 
and civilization arose in seven different places around the globe. And that pattern just, it, it repeats itself over and over and over. But once you're set up on drawdown, then you have to conquer. So now you've got imperialism, you've got militarism. Um, and it's this feedback loop because it's all based on agriculture, which is this process of drawdown. You know, you're destroying the soil, you're destroying the local, um, you know, biotic community in order to produce food for humans. But ultimately, you know, you run out of soil and you run out of water and you run out of trees and then you've got to go get them. Um, and ultimately, the civilizations, the ancient civilizations would collapse um, and mostly that was because they ran out of the soil. And there's this great line from David Montgomery, who's a soil scientist. And he, he wrote a – or he's actually not a soil scientist. He's a biologist. And he wrote this great book called Soil. And it's – this is or Dirt. It's called Dirt. And it's all about how civilizations destroy their soil. And he says most civilizations last between 800 and 2,000 years, which is the length of time until – their soil gives out. Hmm. And so that's the pattern. Okay. So ultimately it depends on the soil and it'll give out and then the whole thing will collapse. Mm -hmm. Now, civilizations used to be limited by um, uh, either the amount, the distance that uh, humans could walk and that they could use pack animals to carry supplies. So for instance, you've got Rome sitting there at the center of the, you know, that ancient world and the you know the that the, they had ships so that helped they could get a little bit bigger because they conquered the Mediterranean so they were able to float around on those boats and you know suck resources out of northern Africa so they deforested the place and they blew through the topsoil um, and then it so so you have to be able to get the supplies out from the hinterlands back into the power center and then what has to go the other way of course are the military orders so the, you know the military the, the generals have to be able to tell you know the the, the soldiers in the hinterlands what to do next. Um, so a lot of times the, the generals who were out in places like Gaul or wherever had a lot more freedom to do what they wanted because they, you know, they didn't have telephones, they didn't have you know, satellite communications. Um, but ultimately those orders had to, be, had to go back and forth and the supply lines for the military could only get so long before they snapped. They could only stretch so far. Um, and what saved Northern Europe from, from the grasp of Rome was of course the Alps because there just was no way to get supplies, the military supplies back and forth across those mountains. So ultimately, that was what saved you know the rest of, of Europe from from Rome. So Rome collapses for that for that reason. They used up everything that they could get to. They used and then it collapses, and then the, the whole pattern starts again somewhere else. And so that's you know that the history. And you could look at the same history in China. You could look at it in India, uh, parts of Africa, certainly South America. Every place where civilization arises, it's the same pattern over and over, which is that drawdown and then the collapse, and then you know it'll spring up again somewhere else. So, um, where am I going with this? Well, I, my, yeah, so what it, what it brings up to me is um, the idea of collapse is it seems that you want to create a premature collapse of an industrial I, society or a civilization. I, yeah, what I want to do is stop it before we reach collapse because those collapses are always catastrophic, both for the environment and f- certainly for human rights and human society. The collapses are inevitable. Um, there's no way around it. If you're on drawdown, you're going to reach zero. Okay, if the line is headed downward, you're going to eventually reach the point where there's nothing left. And at that point, you know, the archaeological evidence is, you know, it ends in cannibalism. I mean, it just ends in this, this complete horror of, you know, where civic society goes, where when when it all just when there's nothing left. And you know, you can see this now in the Congo. Um, you know, places that are just in complete and utter devastation ecologically and then in terms of civic society what happens and that is the inevitable endpoint of every single civilization so you know i mean i think our point in the book is we would like to stop this before it gets that bad everywhere because on a planetary scale 
I mean, I said earlier that there was, you know, that the ancient civilizations were at least more or less human scale. I mean, because they could only get so big. Well, with the invention of, you know, the internal combustion engine, and now, of course, with computer networks, there are no limits. The entire thing has gone global. So, you know, resources are being sucked out of parts of the world that we didn't even know existed 100 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And these resources now are for things like, you know, cell phones and computers that, you know, the rare earth minerals that are coming out of China. I mean, part of the reason they're having those horrible civic meltdown in the Congo is literally over the minerals, the rare earth minerals for our cell phones. Um, so we're already fighting these horrendous wars, um, you know, for this kind of high level technology. Um, now, again, this collapse is inevitable. I mean, an in, in industrial civilization in particular, it was a one-time blowout. And this is what nobody wants to face because I don't know why. They're so addicted to it. They're so dependent on it because no one's telling the truth about it. I'm not really sure where the denial comes from. But, you know, psychology aside, this was a one-time blowout. The energy required to fuel this level of consumption simply doesn't exist anymore. We are on the downside mm-hmm. of peak oil. So that cheap fossil fuel, it's over. I mean, it's it's never going to come again. And there is no amount of, you know, wind and solar and pixie dust that is going to fuel. <laughs> I mean, and, and people really need to face. If they're not, not going to face even the rest of it, that part they need to face. That In the next generation, it's it's going to be nothing but, you know, decreasing returns on increasing demands. And we are looking at some of the most horrendous resource wars that, that the human race has ever known, unless we, we get a grip on this. So, I mean, our point is really that the death and destruction, I mean, they're already happening to all these other species. They're already happening to poor people around the planet. The only people who are doing well on this is really the top maybe 5 or 10% of us. And it's completely immoral, as well as just being based on something that cannot be sustained. So, this is the last generational moment for us to face that and to try to make right. Um, because I mean, we're getting out of things like, you know, the atmosphere, mm-hmm. I mean, there may be oxygen in a hundred years and the plankton populations are collapsing. And, you know, we, we owe two out of three of our literally animal breasts, two out of three of that, of those, the oxygen is dependent on the plankton, the phytoplankton in the ocean and their populations are collapsing now because the oceans are too acidic for them from all the carbon. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's like a level of emergency that I want people to feel. Like you may not be able to breathe in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So, all all that considered, what's then? What are you proposing? What's your plan? Your plan of attack, perhaps, or what? Well, um, so we have, I think, two long term goals, and the first is that we have to stop the rich from decimating the poor and the powerful from destroying the planet, and those things go hand in hand. Because one is being done for the other, and then that one's being done for the first. So, I mean, that's sort of a feedback loop about who's got the power and what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that has to be stopped. So, we have to confront these absolutely global and extremely brutal systems of power. Um, and, we, and, and we have to fight them. And here we are in the belly of the beast, and things look good because it's all being done for our benefit. But the only reason we don't know about the level of destruction is, frankly, because we live behind a military barricade. You know, if we live in a first world country. Mm-hmm. So... We, we need to face that just to be decent human beings, but also if we've got any chance of, of surviving as a planet. So that's number one. And, and number two, I think the goal is that we have to repair the planet while there's still time. And that really re- means re- repairing human cultures as well. So that this dominator mode, starting with agriculture and sort of spreading out um, amongst you know, all these other forms of subordination that, that are, are part of that, um, all of that has to be faced squarely. And, and we have to repair the, the culture 
at large so that um, those kinds of interactions and those kinds of power structures are, um, you know, dismantled in some way um, such that justice becomes possible and, and have the kind of society that, that ultimately would make us all happy. I don't really think it makes people happy to be at war with their neighbors or, um, you know, to be taking while others are, are hungry. I don't, I don't really think that that makes us happy on the deepest level. Yeah. And in you know, when they do studies around the world, it's, it's true that, you know, Americans are actually very unhappy people. <laughs> so whether we're willing to face it or not, it, it's not even making us happy. I mean, 50% of people in this country have actually been on antidepressants, which tells me that, you know, we're the loneliest people on the planet. This has all been doing, done for our benefit, but it's not actually even fulfilling our basic human needs, you know, as social mammals. So, okay, so both of those things have to happen. This destruction, these power, these power relations that are you know global and brutal and, and whatever else that that's got to be stopped. And then on the other hand, there's that repair that has to happen both of our planet and of the culture that we live in, so that we're telling different stories and living in different ways. Um, you know, in, inside a culture that actually respects the limits of the planet and and human rights as well. And those things to me go hand in hand. You can't really have one without the other. So so that's ultimately, those are the grand goals. You know, you have to have goals that you're working for. Well, I think those are ours. And I think that's really the task for this generation. Mm-hmm. If we're going to do it, that's what we have to be after. Uh, now, what about, we're gonna... let me interrupt you. Yeah, go ahead. What about the 7 billion of us, the innocents, the people that are just here, would you agree that there are just too many people for this planet to support? And what do you do about that? Okay, there are vastly too many people for the planet to support. The only reason there are 7 billion of us, um, 6 billion are only here because of fossil fuel. And that is kind of a scary thought. But I think that we need to face the truth about that if we're going to do anything about it. Um, so there's this vast amount of drawdown that's been going on for the last 200 years, and that's the fossil fuel age. So at the beginning of the fossil fuel age, the year 1800, you've got 1 billion people. And ever since then, the population has been on this very, very steep um, you know, reproductive um, ladder going up, and that's because of fossil fuel. That's the only reason that all those people exist. In fact, right now, it's somewhere around two out of three people are only here literally because of the Haber-Bosch process, which is... Um, you know, a scientific method for taking oil and gas and turning them into fertilizer for agriculture. And what literally what we are eating is oil. That's the only reason we're here is because we learned how to eat oil. Um, Again, we're on the downslope of that oil. And so, you know, we cannot face it and just let the entire thing devolve into, you know, Mad Max times 10. Or um, I think we can, if we could try to face this as adults, essentially, um, there's every chance that that we could have a soft landing into a truly sustainable way of life. But you know, my problem is that I don't see the, the institutions that are in charge of this planet headed in the right direction. Now, if I were in charge, there are things that we could do immediately that would lessen the impact and you know start to turn the ship around. And we can talk about that if you want. But I, I, um, if we don't do it, it's it's going to be horrible. I mean, there's just no question. There's going to be mass starvation. See that. The, yeah. It is interesting, and I would like to talk about that, but you're never going to be in charge. So let's not talk about it right now. <laughs> uh, seriously, how are you for the destruction of industry? Is that a fair statement? What I'm for is actually a living planet. And industrial society is 
devouring the planet. And that's, that's not industry on a bad day. That's what industrialization is. Mm-hmm. So there's no, we can't have both. I mean, you, we, we have to make a choice. And it seems insane to me to pick a way of life that, you know, for one generation gave people, what, a whole bunch of plastic junk that poisoned the ocean and didn't even make them happy and then killed everything. I mean, at the end of the day, we've got a bare rock floating around the sun with nothing left alive on it. So, you know, four billion years of evolution, just gone. And, and that's what we're looking at in 100 years if we don't stop this. It makes no sense at all to me to have any kind of loyalty to a system, to a society, to a culture, to a group of people who could do that to this incredible planet and to billions of living creatures. I mean, I just, it's not even a contest in my mind or in my heart about what matters. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm on the side of, of my planet. I'm on the side of, of really every living creature except this tiny little slice of humans who think they have a right to do this. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it seems that just a lot of people are going to have to just get their, their, through this process. They would just be eliminated. I mean, you propose taking out dams or something, you know, we lose hydroelectric power. Um, it's a life support system. I mean, we're we're bound to our technology. People can't exist on the land. You know, even a fairly self-sufficient person like, say, a Joel Salatin or someone probably relies heavily on feeding people with electricity. Well, most people on the planet actually don't have electricity. There's actually only a small slice of us that do. Um, and those of us that do have electricity are, in fact, killing those other people so that we can have our electricity. And right now, there are indigenous people all over the world fighting things like hydroelectric dams because they're 10,000 years sustainable way of life. Their culture, their people, their land, everything is being destroyed for hydroelectric dams that do things like produce Coke cans so that people in the cities can drink, you know, the worst possible junk food imaginable. I mean, there's nothing life-sustaining about this. Um, and I'll just point out that, you know, we lived on this planet for 4 million years without electricity. We, we don't actually need it. We can't eat it. We can't drink it. Um, you know, it doesn't really... I mean, the, the cost of it is like, you know, so we're going to wipe out all these species. We're going to turn the forest into desert. And for what? So that we can watch YouTube videos? I mean, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense at the end of the day about the decisions that this culture has made just don't make they don't make any long-term sense i mean i guess for some people it's a short-term benefit but long-term what's the point if you can't actually live on your land anymore so it's i mean i just it's important to always remember that there that there are people right now fighting these technologies because of what those technologies do to their land and to their cultures that you know it's it's extinction to them to put in those hydroelectric dams. And it's always the powerful in the cities who want them. So it's always the people at the power center who want those things because it makes them more money and gives them more power. And it's always the people in the hinterlands who are paying the price. And when I say pay the price, I mean, we're talking about genocide. We're talking about just the complete you know, destruction of, of their way of life and their culture. I, I'm hearing you. I, I am. Um, it's just a, it's a little difficult um, because this kind of feels it kind of brings me back to this oh some white western USA powered up fueled up you have the high speed internet and every luxury in life are concerned about the plight of some third world country and so you're going to make all these 
uh, efforts to to help them. You know, this has been done time and time again, where we're going to save the the third world countries, whereas, but yet we are we're bathed in technology here and all the luxuries here. So it's just a little confusing to me. I understand your greater point. You're talking about the earth, not communities, you know, not individual people that you're, you're, you're trying to defend the actual earth itself. So it's a little complex for me. I'm I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Well, where I live, (laughs) the the dams that are here are killing the salmon. Okay. Because I live in the Pacific Northwest. So when I think about dams, that's the first thing I think of is the fact that there's this 40 million year old species and there should be, you know, untold numbers of them in these rivers and there's basically nothing left and it's because of the dams and the rivers were dammed for two things for agriculture and then for electricity and so you've got and there were people who lived here for 12,000 years perfectly sustainable it was so simple you went to the river you got your lunch you were done Mm -hmm. and so they were able to make these incredible cultures and I shouldn't speak past past tense because they're still here and they're still fighting for their fish and they're still fighting for their survival Um, but the forest depends on the health of those rivers and what brings the nutrients back up the river are the salmon. And without those fish, the forests are going to die and there's just, they need, they need the nutrients. So this will be a desert without those fish. I mean, it may take a hundred or 200 years or however long it will take, but if, if the salmon are gone, it's, this place is over and they're, they're a keystone species and they, you know, they bring, mm-hmm. they bring the nutrients back to the forest. So this is not some faraway place. It's here. It's now it's, you know, two miles from where I live. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I don't understand why people can't feel the emergency of all of that because that's it. That's food. That's water. That's life. It's we. I mean, we just we can't eat our technology. I mean, we have to have food to survive. So, is this effort going to be able to uh, get any traction or make any significant change without the population at large waking up? Can this happen without them? Well, anything's possible. Right? I mean, the problems that we face are not problems of physics. It's not like we're trying to defeat gravity. Um, All of these problems are social problems. They're not physical problems. So there's every possibility that people could, in fact, see the writing on the wall. I mean, look what just happened to New York City and New Jersey. You know, that we had Superstorm Sandy. Mm -hmm. And all over the world, this is what's happening to people. And we've been very shielded from the information about it in this country. Well, but, I was going to say, if you weren't directly affected by it, I don't think anyone cares right now. Well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is you know, it there's a level of numbness that I don't really, I don't know whether it's numbness or entitlement or some some form of both. And well, this, this all, is this goes back to what's his name, Edward Bernays. This is all his fault. <laughs> he put us in this freaking coma, uh, consumerism. Yeah. You know? It's like, it's, like, it's like every step just escalates, you know? So, you know, there's, there's fractions of the things that you're saying that really speak to me, you know, because I'm in some ways anti-consumerism and things, but um, I'm trying to have a balance here. I mean, I want to teach my kid computer programming because I believe that if he doesn't know it, he won't know the language of the future, you know? Um, and... Honestly, I, I think love salmon, but I don't want to blow up a dam. So I'm kind of, uh, hey, that's why it's called Doc Fermento Discovers the World. I'm trying to sort this shit out. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, look, no, there's, there's many ways that people can 
shift their cultures towards sustainability and towards justice. And so there's many things people have tried over thousands of years, you know, when, and, and as, I mean, one thing I can tell you for sure is as long as there's been oppression, there's always resistance. So I have found it very heartening to study resistance movements because you can see all the things people tried. You can certainly be inspired as well by their courage and, you know, their humanity to each other and their solidarity and, you know, their willingness to just to sacrifice. I think that that's always a very ennobling thing to find out about your fellow humans, that, that these things are possible. Um, now, having said that, um, in in modern history, I mean, and I mean very current history, I think there's really two models that, that have given me a lot of hope about this. And the first is uh, the French labor strike that happened in 2010, and that was in October and November. And this is when the austerity measures, so-called, were you know, being introduced into France. And they still have a real left in Europe, unlike in the United States, where we really haven't for you know, 70 or 80 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people know how to think. They know how to think in terms of strategy, and you know, they, they know how to fight for what's theirs. So you know, the government starts suggesting these austerity measures, and you know, the people, you know, they rise up and they know what to do about it. And so in that case what they targeted was the energy infrastructure of the country. So they blockaded, they, it was totally nonviolent. They used um, human blockades and also trucks and they blockaded all the oil depots in the country. Mm-hmm. And then within two weeks, of course, the economy was just grinding to a halt because they blockaded the energy source. And of course, this is also what you learn at places like West Point. I mean, it's thinking like a military strategist. It's, you know, you hit the energy supplies at, without that, it's over, right? So it's a great bottleneck to work with. Um, so they did. They bottled up the energy supply. So then the, the French government opened the reserve sources, the emergency uh, reserves of fuel, and then the people went and blockaded those as well. And there's wonderful pictures online of you know all these people forming human chains so that you know nobody could get through. And what I love about in France, they always do this great thing when there's a strike where the they call it less cargo, like snail, mm-hmm. and the truck drivers will take over the highways and go five miles an hour in a like a convoy so nobody can get through it's just great it's just it's wonderful stuff so at the end of three weeks there i think there were 23 tankers stranded in the mediterranean they couldn't offload their fuel because they couldn't get to the ports um and so that's how it's done you know and they were able to really make their point here um there is no physical reason that we couldn't do this if we really cared about this planet and about the future of this planet we could shut this party down by midnight if we had a million people out there, they could shut down mountaintop removal, they could shut down coal, they could shut down the oil. There are so few places on the coastline where oil actually comes into this country. You've got Louisiana, the, it's called Loop, the Louisiana offshore oil port, and then um, the coast of California as well. And that's where most of the oil, and New Jersey, that's where most of the oil comes in. In, in, in Louisiana, it's actually 30% of the oil comes right through there. Um, it would be so simple to target those, and I mean this nonviolently, just shut them down using human blockades. Um, so if we really cared about our planet, that's what we'd be doing. We'd be bringing this system to a halt before it's too late. Mm-hmm. Um, but then and we that have, can, then we no, have we, all the death and destruction of all the humans that don't know how to function without these <laughs> now seemingly necessities. You know, the, Remember the, that most people on the planet would do better immediately because their lives are being destroyed so that we can have that stuff. Okay, so the vast majority of people on the planet would actually be better Im- off immediately if, if the, you know, the industrial, the rich industrial countries would get off their necks, they could breathe again. I mean, there's just been this vast migration over the last 50 years of people from, um, you know, the, their land, from the rural areas into the cities, and that's because their lives have been made unbearable in the countryside. And that's because globalization 
has made it impossible for them to actually produce food. And they've got nothing, nowhere to go. They're starving, and so they end up in the cities. And it's just created this vast amount of urban squalor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's out of pure desperation. If it was possible for them to go home again, they would. They still know. They still have the skills. They still know how. But their lives have been made you know, completely unmanageable. And their land has also just been taken. I mean, now you've got huge chunks of Africa that are being you know, literally sold to the highest bidder. And so countries like China are buying up huge chunks of Africa to grow food for the Chinese while people in Africa starve. Mm -hmm. And when you rent that land or buy it, it comes with a private military. Everybody understands what this means. That the local people will be immiserated and starved to death so that people in China can have food. It's a completely unsustainable and unjust way to survive. And that's what you know, the industrial power centers are doing around the globe. So not only would we save the planet, but we would save a whole bunch of people. Okay, by stopping industrialization. Okay. I mean, that's the thing that everybody forgets. It's like, we don't see the suffering because they aren't our neighbors, but, they, but the, that suffering is quite real. I mean, they live in a foreign country and, and they're not white, so they're not, they're not visible to us. Mm-hmm. But, but they're paying the price already. The people are already dying. It's just a question of who's going to die, what's, right? So what's the model of life look like to you, this idyllic model? What are people going to be doing? Hunter-gathering? Well, you know, there's... I mean, at once upon a time, there were 10,000 different cultures in 10,000 different places that all knew how to survive sustainably. So I don't think that that's actually a tough question to answer. And I think that, I think that body and soul were, were part of this planet. You know, we evolved on this planet. You know, our bodies know what to eat if we let them. And, and our spirits know how to respond as well to those complex communities that we're really a part of. You know, they, they make oxygen for us. They make food for us. We give in return. And so I don't think it would be hard to remember how to survive in ways that um, are those participatory cultures rather than those dominating cultures. But yes, I think mostly it's going to be hunter-gathering because that's really the, the most sustainable way that people have figured out how to feed themselves. Um, horticulture can also be sustainable, pastoralism. I was going to say, what about, what about a, say, just use a popular name that people know, the name Joel Salatin. What about a, a system like that? Is that... That's pastoralism because yeah, he's reasonable. He's using a grass-based. Um, so it's a perennial. It's a perennial system. Right. Agriculture is annuals, and what he's doing is is perennial. And because it's grasses, that would be pastoralism. So you've got large undulates eating grass, and mm-hmm. so that's basically the def- definition of pastoralism. So it doesn't matter if it's cattle or sheep or buffalo or whatever you've got. That's um, and that has every hope of being sustainable because you- it's, it's a. <clears throat> In terms of, in terms of nutrients, you're building anything that builds topsoil. You're you're heading in the right direction, and he he's fabulous. I mean, he's okay. done. So you you think it's fair to farm animals then? Well, I don't call it farming, but I guess you could if you wanted. I mean, I, mean, I think that you know you're corralling and controlling, and you're manipulating their natural behaviors by moving them from plot to plot to plot. Um, you're not hunter gathering. You're 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 trying to honor biomimicry. But we don't have the intelligence of nature. So I was just wondering if you thought it was a truly a fair way to live. Well, you could flip it around the other way and look at the way that cows have changed humans and the way that they control our behavior. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that we're actually dominating them. I think that this is a symbiotic relationship. And that is always true with predators and prey. It's always a symbiotic relationship. The predator needs the prey and the prey needs the predator. And they work it out together. I mean, there's a reason that fawns have spots, and it's not because they're cute. It's because that's how they hide from predators. And, you know, you can flip it around the other way and say, well, there's a reason that, um, you know, 
cheetahs can run as fast as they do, and it's because antelope run as fast as they do. So there's always a back and forth between the predator and the prey, and they have to work it out. It has to be a relationship that works for both, otherwise they both die as a species. I don't mean as individuals, I mean as species. The predators can only take so many prey, and the prey have to sacrifice enough to the predators so that they don't uh, overshoot their land base. So these are relationships that are worked out over very, very long periods of time. And, you know, in nature, they're always shifting because everything always changes. But, um, you know, good community members know how to, how to work with that change. Um, and humans are no different. Okay. We, we do not play a different role than these other animals. It's, there's no reason that we, I mean, we did for 4 million years, we did exactly that. You know, we participated in, in those relationships as well, and we did a, a good job at it. And we increased life. We didn't decrease it. It's really only been in the last 10,000 years that we've sort of become monstrous. And it's not all of us either. I mean, it was really just seven different places that, that created this, you know, this sort of drawdown, the system of drawdown. Everybody else is still <laughs> trying to hang on. Yeah, I don't know much about the entire world. Um, I barely know my own neighborhood, so... <laughs> <laughs> And some of the things you were saying, it kind of reminded me, you were talking about this symbiosis, you know, with nature. It reminds me of Michael Pollan's Botany of Desire. Yes, I love that book. How it's, it's so important. It's, it's, it's such a wonderful book. Um, teaching how these plants reach out to us. They honor our desires, you know, to save themselves. It's, it's, a, it's a damn miraculous thing to discover. Yeah, and I think it puts the human hubris um, in a different, a different sort of perspective because we think we're doing this really special thing, you know, like we're controlling these plants or we're domesticating them. And then you flip it around and you're like, wow, look at how those plants got us to do what they, they wanted. They manipulate us. Yeah. And so, again, it's, it's really symbiotic. Everybody gets something out of it, and that's why the relationship works. Otherwise, it's a parasite, and, you know, ultimately the parasite kills the host. Um, so, you know, you got to work it out. And, you know, over time, plants and animals have figured it out. You, you know, there's this moment in, in evolutionary history where um, f- insects that fly, you know, suddenly evolve. And at the same moment, plants turn the world green overnight. And it's because the insects pollinate them. So they work together and the entire surface of the planet changes um, because plants are now able to spread everywhere because they've got seeds, but they, to pollinate, they need the insects. So you've got animals and plants working together to completely change the face of the planet and to create you know, just, just a whole, like, you know, orders of magnitude, you know, just the depth of, of diversity that, that comes from that relationship between plants and animals. And you know, to go in the opposite direction now, we'll make everybody depressed again. Um, there are parts of China where there are n- no longer any flowering plants. And that's because all the pollinators are gone. They've all been killed. Really? And so that, wow. that's 500 million years of evolution that's gone now in China because of the, of the pollinators. So if you want an apple or a head of lettuce, you have to get out there and pollinate all of it by hand because there are, there are no more pollinators. There are no more natural well, pollinators. So, yeah, a lot of this is coming to public view. You can watch some documentaries on bees yeah. It's mostly focused on the United States and monocropping efforts, and um, but they think potentially that's part of the problem for this colony collapse disorder. That plus pesticides plus a dozen other things that we do. So it is happening here, also. I say here as if I, as yeah. if I matter, you know. Right. <laughs> so, 
we're up against the hour here. Um, I'm going to just get my homestead tight and in order in case one of your people knocks my power out. (laughs) (laughs) And... Honestly, you should get your homestead in order because the thing's going to collapse no matter whether we want it to or not. The energy to, to run it is over and the materials yeah, then, needed then are over. Then why can't o- you just let it go? Just let it collapse. Just go teach some homesteading courses. Come on. 200 species went extinct today and they were my kin. They were my sisters and brothers and they're dying one by one. And it matters to me. They're living creatures and I love them and I need them. They're a part of me, and I want everybody to feel that again. It's the only chance we've got to save this planet. It's, it's not enough for me to just sit back and say, well, I, I did my best to have a good life while the planet was being murdered. It just doesn't feel moral to me, and I, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand withdrawing in the face of such – I mean, you know, we, we have such contempt for people in Germany who didn't try to protect the Jews and fight the Nazis, and this is just an order of magnitude. You know, it's it's a thousand times. I mean, it's the entire planet we're talking about, not even just one group of you know oppressed people, and nobody seems alarmed, let alone willing to face the scale of of what's required. So, I don't know. Maybe we're just different, but I I can't sit back while my while my kin is being murdered before my eyes. 